Hi, I'm Thomas Lincoln. Hi, everyone. I'm Carmelyn McCracken. I'm Mike Browning, sound engineer. Welcome to More to My Story podcast. Uh, this idea got started over dinner with some friends, and Carmelyn and I were talking about how we love to listen to podcasts and how we know so many interesting people, but we don't know their story. It's been fabulous because we have sat with different people here in our church for years and years and we all think oh yeah we know so and so we know so and so but when thomas came up with this idea of let's sit down and have a conversation to really learn more about everyone that's where this podcast was formed and so we have had so much fun learning more to each person's story and we think you will too to have Gary Aiken on and I can't wait for y'all to hear his story but some of my favorite things about sitting here with our guests is of course we get to hear some behind the scenes I loved hearing how he and Nikki met and and that whole uh, dating scene but it is so fun to just you know I've known these people for 10-15 years and then we sit down and we hear these stories that take us back because we've been interviewing some of our guests are in their late 70s 80s and it's so fun to kind of hear where it all began and Gary's got a great story where it all began yeah I mean it, and I enjoyed it I enjoyed hearing some things and I get to spend some time with Gary so I I felt like I knew him and he said he jokingly said you already know everything about me but we didn't and uh, you know how he met Nikki, his wife, and some of the life they did there. And then I really enjoyed some of his. He, he has such a, um, uh, a zest for life, and to hear about how he got into sailing and, and doing that that was was pretty cool for me. So I, I enjoy that that time. Um, you know, he he moved around quite a bit with the family, right. and he even still works today. I, that that is brand new too, but to last two or three years. I mean, who yeah. does that and starts this incredible uh, chapter with sleep in heavenly peace? So I think uh, I think everyone's going to really enjoy this one. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. All right, Gary, thanks for for joining us today. Uh, excited to learn more about your story. Carmelin and I have talked about it a little bit, and. You know, just uh, get us started. You know, you you were uh, you grew up on a farm. Is that correct? Yes, it, it was really a, a gentleman farm, in that Dad had a full time job, but it was a part of my grandfather's property, about thirty acres, and grew up raising cattle and sheep and chickens and pigs and whatever. Wow! Did you have any siblings? I had two sisters. Okay, uh-huh. okay, mm-hmm. and I had did one they... older and one younger. Okay, so did they uh, hold their weight as much as the brother? Uh, pretty well. They they didn't get into all the things in the barn, but uh, yeah. they they had their chores. That's awesome. Yeah, you and Dad pretty close. Do a lot of things growing up. We did. Uh, my dad was a lineman for a power company, and he had a lot of part time jobs of wiring people's houses. And I was always there as an able assistant to uh, do that. Uh, he didn't like my attention span sometimes. He quite often would ask me, he said, uh, Gary, can you see what I'm doing with that flashlight? And I'd say, yes. He said, well, how about putting it where I can see it? 
That's pretty good. Sounds like something my dad would say. And then I even went with him when he went on calls at night, which probably was totally unapproved by the company. But uh, I would go get in the line truck with him, and we'd go to unhook a house when it was burning or something like that. Wow. So what, what was that like? I mean, you're growing up. I mean, how did that influence you? I, I guess it gave me a good appreciation for what a day's work was. I, I never learned how to climb poles though, like he did. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. So so that starting from way back when you were a young guy is really what kind of got you interested in the whole engineering or the electrical side? Well, yes. Uh, Dad even bought a Heath kit. I don't know whether anybody knows what a Heath kit is today. Mike does, but that was building your own television set. And he oh. thought he and I would build that television. We never completed that TV set. <laughs> Probably a big disappointment on his part, but that led to uh, thinking that I wanted to be an electrical engineer until I ran into calculus. Yes, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> Great. you know. And so the other thing that we see in some of the information we got from you is you started off... Um, selling greeting cards as a kid. So can you expand that was a, on that? That was a one way of earning money. They, they didn't have such a thing in my neighborhood in the country as a paper route. So uh, I forget the name of the greeting card company now, but they would send you out a package of greeting cards and you'd go to the neighbors and write orders and and it really produced some income. Yeah. That's interesting. So you were a door-to-door -door salesman yes. of greeting cards. Yeah, picked on all my neighbors. Oh, for crying out loud, I love it. I How long did you it. do that for? Probably a couple of years. Yeah, I don't even remember what age it was, Thomas, but uh, yeah. it might have been 10 or 11 or something like that when I was doing that. So uh, let me ask you this. What would the price of the greeting cards be back in the day? I think they were like a dollar or $2 a box. Wow, okay. <laughs> so nice. would you sell a whole box of like birthday cards to a family or would you sell this card for like a nickel? No, I'd sell them in the sort run of boxes. They, oh. It was three or four or five to the package. Oh, yeah. very cool. Oh, that's fun. A lot different than, than what they do today. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, now we do an e-card. We don't have to do anything all online. Right. So what did you do from there? You started out selling greeting cards. You're working on the farm. Kind of walk us through until you get through college. Interesting is I worked on the farm and worked on neighbors' farms for a number of years. And then one of my summer jobs was uh, working on a big farm. I mean, these guys farmed thousands of acres and uh, drove a tractor all summer. And uh, I guess that pretty well convinced me that I'd, I thought I wanted to be a farmer, but it took a lot of money to be a farmer back then. You had to have a lot more than 33 acres and, and a lot of equipment. And... Uh, Plus, it was doggone hard work. Um, I was fairly small at that time. I was in my uh, sophomore, junior year, I was a 99-pound weakling. If oh, could be my that. goodness. <laughs> About 5'9". And working that summer on the farm before we went back to school, uh, I ran into, I had to weed soybean fields down in the river bottoms. I ran into Johnson grass that was bigger than me. Oh, my goodness. And it won. <laughs> <laughs> I never will forget, though, a little bit about that ethics and, and commitment. I quit a week early. I told Dad I need a vacation, and he was so mad because he got that job for me. And he said, you don't give up on those things, you know? <laughs> wow, that's excellent. So that, though, that working on the big farm was the thing that really turned you away from farming as a future career. Pretty much, pretty wow. much, yeah. 
And then you ended up working at, uh, I guess, during school, you worked at a grocery store? Or? Finishing high school and then, and then some in college, I worked at a grocery store for uh, just a small store um, back then in, in a small town. The town was only 2,500 people, so you can matter which size of the store was. And, uh, and then other part-time jobs um, throughout college. In, uh, uh, at one job in college that I look back on it, and it was really an excellent learning situation. We had a, a uh, company in southern Indiana that they put a, um, I don't know how we would describe it as digital today, but it was a series of lights on the outside of a bank building. And we flashed news on that corner of the bank building. Interesting. And so they had a, uh, like a teletype machine. And I would put the teletype together based on what news they sent me, and that would flash around and we'd sell advertising. They'd sell advertising. I didn't sell oh advertising. Oh, But that was uh, really interesting. And uh, it worked out rather well in that uh, I was downtown Evansville, which was 10 miles from where I lived. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, which happens to be my wife now, <laughs> she could come after school and meet me at the shop, and we'd go have a snack or something like that. So. That's so cute. So you're from um, Evansville, Indiana? I grew up in the town of Newburgh, Indiana. Okay, okay. And then when you were working at this job, that was in Evansville, about 10 miles out from yes. you? Okay, and right. that's where you and Nikki, were you, were you high school sweethearts? No. Okay, okay. So We'll get to that. And you also mentioned that you were in the Navy Reserves in high school. In uh, the senior in high school, there were about four or five of us joined the Navy Reserves. I don't think we had a clue that we wanted to make a commitment to the Navy, and I'm not sure that anybody did out of that group go full-time. Uh, but uh, we went to Navy Reserves every every week and went on the, the two-week tours of duty uh, in different parts of the country. And uh, I've thought about it since. I never asked my parents if I could join. I just says, I'm joining, and they said, okay. And I'm sure there was, you know, the thoughts of, oh, geez, he's going to go fight in a war somewhere. You know? Right. <laughs> so how long did you do that for? I actually did that for about four years and then uh, got married and uh, had uh, other duties of work and school. And uh, so I, I, I maintained my eight-year obligation, but I wasn't active all eight years. Okay. So what attracted you? Was it just you and your buddies in school one day? They had the um, the Navy uh, recruiter there. What what um, do you remember? That's an interesting question. I really don't remember other than yeah. uh, the three or four of us just got together one day and decided that that's what we were going to do. Uh, yes. We weren't sailors, or you know, we lived on a river, but there was no sailing there. But. Uh, just decided that's something we should do and it wasn't i don't think any one of us did it out of a sense of duty like you know they're fighting a war we want to go help right we might have thought of it as some extra spending money too sure sure <laughs> oh my goodness so and your parents were supportive when you said yes. okay that's yeah. great yeah yeah i never got one lecture about not doing it that's for sure that's great oh my goodness so where did you go to college uh Evansville college right there at home it was a seven mile drive every day Oh. And uh, I was a, it's a small university. Um, it, um, I think at the time there were like maybe 1,300 students. And it's still fairly small, still under 5,000, I think, today. It's called the University of Evansville today. 
they were mostly noted for their basketball, which wasn't why I went there, but uh, I started out there in engineering and ended up graduating in business. And then when you were there, that's when you, you met Nikki. Yes. And as you call in here, the cute blonde. Right. So, and and you and Nikki dated for a while and then got married. I right. Mean, we did. We dated for a couple of years. She was actually a double blind date. Okay. Oh. What's this mean? Uh, yeah, a friend of mine who didn't have a car at the time um, invited me to, he needed to go hook up with a, a young lady that he was going to take to a prom at a different school than uh, where I was at. And um, so he said, I need you to drive me, but I'll fix you up. <laughs> and uh, so we, we went out. And uh, it's interesting, at that time I had a 51, this was in 1956, I had a 51 Ford hardtop, crown Ooh. hardtop. It, it was you know, only a few years old and a really nice car, I thought. And uh, anyway, I think in the car there must have been uh, six of us, okay? It was Elvis time. These oh. these kids were really into Elvis, you know, and whatever. And we went out to somebody's house, and they talked about getting everything worked out to go to the prom. And my date was less than desirable. And so uh, I decided when it was time for everybody to go home, I knew I was taken home last. <gasps> oh, snap. <laughs> so we got a little better acquainted and... 60 years later or 61, here we are. So she wasn't even your date. You no. dropped your date off. You dropped her date off. And then, oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> that is well done, Gary. 60 years, you all have been married. engineering at the, very well <laughs> yes, at that time. exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So you had this really good thought process even back then where <laughs> thinking down the road, how sure. do I make this go? <laughs> all right. So then you get through, you get into college, and this is seems to be one of the... the um, kind of marquee parts of your of your life where you you were going to school to become an engineer and then you ran into calculus yes and you were you considered yourself a very good math student but calculus is a little different a lot different yeah so how was that when you got into calculus and 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 started taking that course what what was the going through your mind there i I'm not sure it wasn't all the extracurricular activities that was going on at the time, maybe a part of it. I'm sure that my parents would have said that. But uh, it was just that this isn't going to work. Uh, uh, I had been pretty committed to being an engineer, but uh, this isn't going to work. And at that that point, uh, two years into it, we got married and decided I'd better find something that I could do. And so I... uh, decided to graduate with a degree in marketing. Uh, It it was not a real tough decision because I think calculus made the decision for me. Right, right. (laughs) Besides your relationship and getting married, was there other organizations? Were you involved in other parts? uh, Were you, I mean, sound like you were probably working. Were you in any clubs or organizations in college? I was actually in a fraternity for a couple of years. Okay. Uh What fraternity? Acacia. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Very big in Indiana, isn't it? Yes, Yeah. yeah. Uh, coincidence, uh, one of the members of church, her dad and her grandfather were Acacia members, I found out this week. Oh, who was that? Uh, uh, Kim Roots. Oh, sure. Oh, my goodness. I was at her sorority talking about 
our favorite bed project. So, yes. Ah. Oh, that's excellent. I love it. So were you athletic as a kid or do anything? Because I know you have some good height on you. <laughs> well, no, I didn't. Remember, oh, that's right. as, as a, a little uh, pipsqueak. high schooler, yeah, a little pipsqueak, <laughs> 99 pounds. A matter of fact, I tried to play basketball uh, for uh, maybe about a year. And there were five of us that we literally warmed the bench every game. <laughs> and uh, the guys would, you probably never had the medicine ball, did you? Carmel? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. One guy would throw that medicine ball and knock me halfway across the court. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And finally, it was, it was uh, I forget, it was towards getting close to the end of the basketball season. And I think I'd played a total of three minutes in one game, maybe. Oh. And uh, so I, I was not a basketball player at all. And uh, I was belonged to the 4-H club. Oh. And they were having a dinner one night. And it was a leadership program that I had belonged to. And it was on a game night. So I went up to the coach and I asked if I could take off and go to the game. I didn't think he'd give a hoot. Well, he did. And so he said, well, Gary, that's if you go to the game, that's it. I went to the game. Unfortunately, the the announcement I gave to him was that this was a Friday night fish fry celebration. Guess what my nickname was for the next two years? No! Oh, were you fish fry? Fish fry. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh my gosh, that's funny. But I never regretted that decision at all. So, <laughs> so, Interesting. so you skipped the basketball game to go to the 4-H fish fry? Yeah. yeah. Interesting that probably 10 years later, I was actually selling a product to schools, and he, this coach was originally from Vincennes, and he had gone back there to teach. And I was there calling on the schools, and uh, he was the person that I ended up having to talk to. <laughs> and keep in mind, I was 5'9 when he knew me. Yeah. At this time, I was about 6'2". And he, he walked out and he said, you're who? And he looked up at me like... <laughs> <laughs> Your fish fry? <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. So you get through college. You decide to graduate with a marketing and um, degree with a minor in mathematics and, and go on to work. So kind of walk us through your, your, your career path here a little bit. I think there's another... You, at one point, you talk about working for an oil company. Obviously, you sold something to schools. Right. So. There, there was an interim period of time that um, a friend of the family was a district manager for a local oil company and ran a distribution center where we would, uh, the distribution center would serve the, uh, the gasoline stations as well as uh, the uh, uh, consumers that use fuel oil for fuel. And uh, I got a job there for a couple of years that uh, was a pretty good job while I was finishing up my college. And... Uh, that didn't, because of some other downturns, that didn't last very last past a couple of years. And um, I took a job in a uh, company that was primarily serving industrial linens and towels and uniforms. And actually, when I graduated college, I was recruited by them to move to Chicago into their marketing department. And I was a marketing graduate, so... Boy, a young kid from the farm going to the to big, big city. city. Uh, th that was probably a, a monumental change for us. So did you have kids yet? We, at that time, when we moved to Chicago, we had three children. You had three, three girls. girls. Okay. Yeah. 
Is that what you? So you had three girls. That's that was your family. Yes. You had Nikki and the three girls. Okay. I think what's funny is you had three girls, two sisters. We're all the boys. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So where in Chicago did you all live? Were you in Chicago, Chicago? We uh, started out in Pork Forest, which it, oh, that, okay. if you have ever heard, Pork Forest was the original place that where they built a lot of homes for veterans to come back to. And so it was fairly economic housing. Uh, it was a long train ride to work or a car ride, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, was a nice community. And how long did you stay in Chicago? I think we were there about three years. Okay, and then where did you go? I transferred with that company. I transferred to Rockford, Illinois, and uh, was recruited there by a division manager in the company as a sales manager. Again, we were selling industrial supplies, such as uh, uniforms and that kind of thing, to uh, industry and restaurants. And then how long were you there? Uh, About another three years. Okay. And then where to? Let's see. (laughs) I got impatient with that one. Yeah. um, In that uh, I just thought it wasn't, uh, I wasn't growing fast enough income-wise and career-wise. And I was recruited by a company out of... uh, uh, Port Washington, Wisconsin, they manufactured lawn and garden equipment in snowmobiles. Ooh, oh. And uh, I was recruited there to uh, take a territory for them selling to distributors uh, in Kansas City. And we lived in Kansas City for about a year. And then was recruited to uh, take over a branch distributorship for them in Michigan. And we lived there in Michigan for nine years. So how was the... You know, at that time, were a lot of people moving around that much? Yeah. Oh, they were. Yeah, it was. It's, it's interesting to look back on it now, especially since I'm a recruiter and that's what I do, is that uh, it, it was nothing for somebody to move around every two or three years. That's interesting. How was it on the girls um, and Nikki moving around? Until we got the kids in high school, it worked out all right. Okay. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't seem to mind. Uh, Nikki... We lived in Kansas, in Park Forest, she worked, and in Kansas, she didn't work. Uh, she might have had a part-time job for a little bit, but... Uh, okay. Did you guys own houses at any of these? When did you buy your first house? We actually bought our first house before we moved to Chicago, but that only was for about a year. And then in Chicago, we rented... Uh, <clears throat> they had a program, what they called the co-op program, so it was like buying into a cooperative housing thing mm-hmm. so it gave you a tax advantage then we bought our first house real house in kansas city okay and then when you moved to michigan that's where you were at the longest right yes. in michigan and you said how long were you there uh, it was about nine or ten years okay and did the girls graduate from high school up there yes oh, all but one okay the youngest one moved with us to milwaukee but the other two graduated from high school in michigan and we started dropping kids off we left two in michigan and then the youngest one had two more years of school when we moved to wisconsin and that worked out pretty well okay she ended up going on she was the only one that ended up going on to college and went to De Pere in green bay oh sure sure okay okay so so through all these moves where was the the place she liked the best. The, I mean, and I, I really, I guess, where did Nikki like to live the best? Because I think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you're going there for work, a lot of your happiness a lot of times is tied into how your job is. So obviously you liked, you know, being in Wisconsin because 
you were you stayed there for so long and you were probably happy with your job but along the way did nikki ever go man i really wish we would have stayed in park forest or i really miss indiana you know what was that like for her i i would imagine that she would probably say you know you lived in michigan in east lansing um that was the formative year for the kids but she had a really really good job matter of fact her and boss her boss tried to entice her to stay and let me go i think how funny <laughs> she was the secretary to the founder and owner of an insurance company and uh, it was ironic but a couple of years later we learned that he made all the employees owners of the company <laughs> oh, interesting. So that, that was probably a bad decision on my part. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. you, you just roll with Hindsight. it. Hindsight. We had a lot of good friends there. We've had good friends everywhere. And uh, she had, uh, we had a good time. But I think she would probably say East Lansing was fun. We attended football games and hockey games. and That's a fun town for yeah. sure. So then what took you to Milwaukee? Uh, it was I was being transferred with the same company. Okay. Yeah, I was moved into a uh, sales management position at that time. I was a branch manager for him, running a distributorship, and then I moved into a uh, sales management position in the office. Yeah, I was wrong. You were in Michigan for nine or ten years, and yes. then Wisconsin after You're right. that. So, yes. my mistake. Okay, so let's jump ahead out of curiosity, and we might circle back. But how did you end up in Texas? Uh, I wasn't really looking for anything different. I had uh, gotten out of the lawn garden business and, and joined another company up in Keele, Wisconsin, still living in Mequon, because I traveled a lot. All of my, most all of my jobs was uh, 30 or 50 to 70% travel. And uh, my time at the uh, company in Chicago, I had come, become acquainted with a, a fellow that was, ended up being their uh, vice president of sales of the whole corporation and become acquainted with him in his training program. And he was he ended up becoming a sales management consultant. So he was consulting with a company in uh, in Houston, uh, Wicks and Sticks, which is the candle shops, or was the candle oh, shop. Sure. And and wallpapers to go, which were the uh, come in and pick your wallpaper up. Yes. And he was consulting with them and uh, they were having some sales problems and uh, he called me and got me an interview to, to come to Houston. Wow. Yeah. The connection that I had maintained for some 20 years. But uh, Yes. And then your wallpapers to go job was one that you had for uh, quite a few years, right? Uh, probably three or four only. Oh, three or four. Okay. Yeah. So you you worked for the Lawn Garden Company and you went and you were in another sales position and then you ended up in wallpapers to go. And that was that was a uh, a big deal for you because that was one of the things you were really wanting to do with your career is become vice president of sales right. for a company, right. and you achieved that. And then three years in, wallpapers to go files bankruptcy. Yes. And then so so they, how did that? I mean, when you got that news, did you did you feel it coming? Did you see it in the? I mean, was there a hint or? There was there was a good hint there and. Um, I had started looking for other opportunities. Um, I had worked with a recruiter friend in management recruiters, <clears throat> and I called him and I said, Tim, it's time for me to bail. I know things are going south. Um, they had might have already filed bankruptcy and were going through the, the throes of that. 
<clears throat> and uh, I said, but I, I really want to stay in Houston. We really like it here, and I like my income. And he said, yeah, you and a thousand others, you know. And uh, anyway, at, at that point in time, he said, well, why don't you do I had known, I'd worked with the, well, he had placed me at the job in Keele, Wisconsin, some 20 years before. And so I'd stayed in touch with him. I had recruited people through them when I was hiring salesmen for selling franchises for wallpapers to go. And so he said, I think you need to go to Cleveland and then meet the, and I had already met the chairman at some franchise shows. So it was like doing business with a friend. Nice. And I saw it coming enough that the day they came in to terminate me and lay me off, which I knew was coming, I had already signed a franchise agreement, but I, I was it was it was really interesting in that it was the best thing that could ever happen to me, yes. but it still was a kick in the face. Yes, and I think I gave that complexion, which made my severance that much better. Oh. <laughs> yes. So you moved to Texas. I'm I'm just guessing probably late '80s, early '90s. Mm-hmm. And at that time in Houston, we're coming through a the oil downturn, and so the oil market, so the the economy in Houston. You move in when the economy in Houston is probably at a lower point, and then this happened sometime in the early '90s when Houston's kind of climbing out of it. Was that any of a concern when you're looking around and you're going, okay, there is a certain amount of unemployed uh, oil people out here and, and people impacted by the oil price? That's, that's an interesting question in that uh, there was no way I wanted to recruit in the oil patch because you're right. The people that were in the oil patch knew everybody. They were, it was a good old boy network for sure. And if you were a recruiter or you were doing contract help, there was no way you were going to break that mold. So obviously I started out recruiting in something that I knew fairly well, and uh, which was food processing equipment. That's what I'd been in for or in, in related jobs in, in a number of years. Uh, so I guess I was blind enough to know that from what the franchise people had told me, there was enough of an opportunity out there in that we were on the upturn, that we had made, made it through the worst, but no use trying to recruit any oil patch, find, find a field that's uh, better for what you're suited for. So going through there, you said it was kind of a little bit of a, a, a you know, kick in the gut when, when they come in and they have the severance package and all that. Did, do you feel like your recovery took a little while? Did you feel like you got into this new recruiting position and, and you're like, all right, I got to, you know, we'll go after this, make it happen. But was there in the back of your mind, uh, you know, wow, that's I'm still kind of reeling a little bit from that situation or was it? I'm kind of running my own business now. I think it really was more running my own business. And the severance package had carried me for the uh, startup time. I, I knew that was a protection that I didn't have. When if, if I would have gone in and quit, I wouldn't have had that, that protection. So I had that insurance, which uh, was, was a fairly good advantage. And I think it eased the pain of knowing that it's going to take you 90 days uh, the figure was pretty much 90 days to start a new program up in, in recruiting and get things going. And that's when you, so that's what MRI is, right? Yes, right. You know, okay, I've known you and Nikki probably, gosh, 15 years. And I, 
all the way up until today, thought you were an MRI, like the imaging <laughs> at the hospitals. And now as you're talking, I'm like, oh, I bet that means recruiting. <laughs> so tell us about that then. Because that, that's your business, MRI. Right. Yes. Yeah. We've been at it now going on 27 years. And uh, I've, I have had bigger, lots of employees, and I've had few employees, and right now there's, there's a couple of us doing recruiting, but it's been a very good, very good business yes. through the, the best part of the times. And <clears throat> the franchise has good support, so we had a good learning mechanism on how to do it. And I think I produced my first placement in the 90 days, which was pretty much the, the recipe. And then uh, we wrote that out uh, fairly well. And during some of the good times, I had one producer that worked for me that uh, did almost a half a million dollars in recruiting for a year. Wow. Yeah. So you were as much a manager as you were a recruiter. You were I was both, yeah. yes. Yeah. So this is pretty interesting. As I sit here and think about recruiting and, and everything you talk about is relationships. So you talk about the 20-year relationship you had with the gentleman that got you an MRI. You talk about how he had placed you, and you talked about the relationship you'd met the the CEO at some uh, events mm-hmm. when you were um, with the, the the wallpapers to go, and and so I'm sitting here thinking that really sets you up to do what you spend a lot of time doing now, and that is getting people engaged to help you help others. And, and I, I think you're kind of unique in this that you have a way to reach out and you get, you're like, hey, you know, there's a there's this going on or that going on. And next thing you know, there's 15 people in a room trying to figure out how they're going to help some area. So when did you start getting involved in service and, and helping others? Uh, most, uh, the most of my involvement started probably with my move to Houston. And, and when I... Uh, I'd done a little bit before I started my own business, but uh, and it was through the church um, because we had a group of active people at the church that were involved in Habitat and other projects. And um, from the time that I was a, a small kid, I was able to do carpentry projects with my, my grandfather, and then I worked with my dad, and so always enjoyed using my hands. But here was an opportunity, especially with Habitat, to go in and not only use your hands and train other people how to do it and and make a real big difference. And so that was about 1993, I guess, that I really got serious about uh, uh, helping others and, and, and making a difference and, and saw that I was able to make that difference. Well, and also I would imagine you finally were out of sales where you were traveling 50 to 70% of the time Right. So when you started with your with MRI and you were here in Houston and you and Nikki, you didn't have all the family like you had back in the Midwest. So I would imagine you had some time now to actually commit to some service like Habitat volunteering or sure. or church. No question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the lack of traveling frees up a lot of time. For sure. <laughs> for sure. And it frees up a lot of mental space and energy. Right. I mean, because you're not exhausted. So was that when you also started getting involved with the Alyssa? No, that was several years later. That, okay. that was about eight, eight or nine years later. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I had heard about the Alyssa and uh, had actually been on it and seen it, but I, I didn't know what their volunteer program was. And then uh, I think it was 2000 three, four, or five, somewhere along in there, 
we were down there and just decided that it was time to do that. So going back to, to Habitat, you mentioned Habitat. Was that, when did you get involved in Habitat to the level that you, I mean, because you got pretty, pretty involved in Habitat. Um, yeah. Another friend of mine and I served as construction committee probably for 15 years. And, uh, and then there was a period of time that I served as the, uh, I, for two years served as president of Habitat. And that was a time when they were getting into the restore business. So I've been acting, I haven't been the last couple of years, but I've been actively involved with the board activity probably for almost 20 years. Uh, and uh, from the standpoint of uh, not necessarily raising a lot of funds, but certainly directing activity and part of the uh, facilitating of building the houses. So what what do you find most rewarding when you were doing that when you got involved in Habitat? What what kept you going with it? It's interesting. I, I think it's really the fun of being able to work with your hands and people you in, enjoy being around. But the other side of it is is you're offering the volunteers that come out each week. You're offering them the opportunity to learn how to do something, and when they get done, they feel like they've really made a contribution. And so that's that's a big part of, of any part of running a volunteer program is making sure that everybody enjoys what they get out of it as well. And again, just for the listeners, we're talking about Habitat for Humanity, and we will put a link towards that great organization um, on our uh, on this podcast. But you've been, I just wanted to mention that in case people didn't know what <laughs> Habitat was. And we're Habitat and Humanity of Northwest Harris County. Um, we're... The, uh, I think now the affiliate is ranked in the top 10 in the nation as number of homes are built and their, their resource volume is number three and their profit is number one. Oh wow. my goodness. So it's, it's gone from 25 years ago when we would literally order lumber and build a house and pray that we got money to pay for it the next month. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that is excellent. I didn't know that. That's yeah. excellent. So then... Uh, about a about a year and a half ago, you you got involved in, an, in another charity organization called Sleep in Heavenly Peace. How did that come about? Well, I I knew this was in January February, and I knew that come April I was going to retire from the Alyssa after volunteering there 13 years on the sailing ship, and uh, that was a program that you committed. 20 weekends a year, 20 Saturdays a year to being down there to uh, to maintain the ship and, and sail it. And it was certainly a great program. And so I knew I was giving that up because I didn't know how good my sea legs would be anymore. And uh, lo and behold, uh, good old Facebook showed me a video of returning the favor with Mike Rowe on Sleep in Heavenly Peace. And uh, I think I probably watched it a couple of times and I went home to Nikki, my wife, and I said, this is something we can do. And she said, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki. <laughs> so Sleep in Heavenly Peace, to give the listeners a little bit of insight, is a organization that started approximately 10 years ago yes. in Idaho, in Boise, Idaho, by um, at a church where they were going to make a few beds to give the, some right. families where the kids weren't sleeping on the floor. They didn't have a bed to sleep in, and they... They made this as a as a Christmas project, and then afterwards they had some leftover lumber, and they decided to do some more. So they threw it up on 
Facebook got some more interest and created it into a, a, a nonprofit organization. And so what they do is they these um, Sleep in Heavenly Peace chapters make bunk beds from two by fours and two by sixes, and they they uh, make these and then they deliver them and assemble them fully furnished with a mattress, uh, sheets, comforter, pillow for kids between the ages of th- three to 17 that don't have a bed to sleep in. And I wanted to just go ahead and share Don Droverhead. Um, we had asked him a little bit about some stories for you. And so here's what he wrote about how Sleep in Heavenly Peace got started here at our church. Gary's quality that is most notable and favorite thing is his perseverance and passion to help those in need and his ability to get others to help. Gary talked our church out of a classroom to be the main office of a fledgling Habitat for Humanity Northwest group, which as you mentioned 25 years ago wasn't um, as strong as it is now. As this group grew and prospered, he was looking for another project. Retirement wasn't part of Gary's plan. He saw a show on TV by Mike Rowe on Returning the Favor that featured building bunk beds for kids that were sleeping on the floor. He and Nikki decided to take a short vacation trip to Twin Falls, Idaho to check out the Sleep in Heavily Peace organization and the rest is history. So not only, and, and when did you first go out to Idaho? In May of last year. May of 2018. Yes. Okay, so here we are in August of 2019. Uh, what is that, 14 months? So tell us, um, where is the, this? what chapter are, is the Sleep in Heavenly Peace here known as, and how are they looking nationwide in 14 months? Well, thanks for asking, Carmen. Good commercial, but... Um, <laughs> You're right. In, in May, I went to, went to the meeting. I had already emailed everybody about talking about the program. And in May, I went to the meeting and said, once I get back, we'll have that meeting and get together. And I think we got together in June. Do you recall? Yeah, that time? it was June. Got together, started organizing, and we had we knew what we wanted to do. We had no place to do it. And at that point, nothing to do it with. Well, lo and behold... Uh, it was fate, I guess, but uh, certainly help from upstairs in that I contacted the missions committee and they had just had a program canceled that had a $3,000 budget. That was enough to buy our tools to start with. Oh and they, it, within a month, I think we had that fund. And uh, so again, pressure was relieved. Yes. And about the same time, another friend said, well, if you don't have a place to build, I got one for you. And he gave us the connection at the Met. And we built the first bunk on August the 18th of last year. All for crying out loud. To date, we have built 768 beds and we've delivered 675. My goodness. We rank uh, number three in total bunks built for all of SHB. And uh, this year so far, uh, we're right now number one in bunk, bunk beds built for 2019. It's uh, been a phenomenal occurrence. I mean, people really rallied. Uh, I got my church friends and my Habitat friends and other people I never knew before that have come out to uh, to support the mission. Well, that's excellent. And that really is a tribute to your leadership and your passion and your um, vision to just see this on a Facebook video and think, hmm, 
What the heck? So I, I don't know if it's ever um, uh, polite to ask, but how old are you, Gary? 82. 82. So at 81, you're like, hmm, maybe I'll try something new. And here you are, number three in the nation, number one this year in the build. So it just says, which comes back to, I know your motto is, if it is to be, it's up to me. And well done. Well, well thank done. you. Thank you. It is, it has been a phenomenal to, to be able to contribute to that level and have so many people support what you do and, and make such a difference. We made a difference in 225 immediate families, not counting grandparents and whatever. Wow, that's excellent. I, and thank you for doing all that service, both Habitat for Humanity, Sleep in Heavenly Peace, and, and the other service work you've done. I was kind of curious here. You have a theme when, you, when we ask you about some of your memorable vacations and things you've done, sailing is throughout this. <laughs> and and in, in fact, you, that's how you mention in here that you joined the Navy Reserves, but you didn't really become a sailor for another 30, 40 years after that. Right. So how did you, what was, where did the desire to get into sailing come from? That's, that's interesting because I, I, never, I, I never swam until I was probably 13 or 14, and there were ponds all over the country I lived in. And we did very little activity on the river. Uh, there was a lot of boating there, but we didn't do much. And uh, um, I guess I had sailed casually with some other friends in the Ozarks one time on a piece of plywood, <laughs> equivalent of a four by eight piece of plywood. And that was fun. And then, uh, Nikki and I were bowling with a group in East Lansing, and uh, one of the it was fairly late that night. And one of the guys said, the next day he was going to his dad's boat in Detroit, and they were going to race. And Nikki said, I know Gary'd love to do that. And I got up at five o'clock the next morning, and we drove to Detroit. And the rest is really history. Wow. We raced uh, several years with his dad every Saturday that we were available in Detroit. And uh, th that set the hook. So what kind of sailing are you doing? What, what kind of vessel are you on? Well, at that time, uh, we were on a 25-foot uh, uh, sloop-rigged boat. There was a crew of about eight. Uh, we graduated up to a 35. We actually sailed one race from Port Huron to Mackinac Island, uh, which is northern Michigan. And that was an overnight race, and uh, that was really a lot of fun. So during that, you're you're going the whole time as a crew. You guys yes. are, are racing the boat throughout the night. So you start. What time of day did you start, and when did you get? Uh, uh, we would get down there at the yacht club by eight or nine o'clock. They might have a start time at ten, and then it's uh, I think it was fifty-two hours. Wow. And, and in Lake Huron, it was in all kinds of weather. Yes. We actually had one 80-footer get demasted that night. So that was oh a, not a good sight to see. No. So that, that's really kind of cool. So then you do this racing. Um, you do it. And then you say on your, some of your vacations, you, you sailed with friends to the British Virgin Islands. Right. Was that – I mean, obviously, that's not racing. But what kind of – are you – Kind of tell me about the, the boat, the trip itself. How did it come about? Uh, friends that we had met in Rockford, Illinois, um, 
and he has had a boat in different places <clears throat> and we've sailed off and on and uh, we would go down there and charter a boat the three couples for about a week and just bounce around the bvi it's it's like sailing in a big bathtub because there's not much unless you get outside uh, we did take one trip to St. Croix, I think, and which was kind of exciting, but uh, we made it through all that, and we did that a couple of times. You yeah. know, I went to school at Marquette University in Milwaukee, and so I'm from Chicago, and um, one year for spring break, my friends and I are like, what should we do? And I'm like, I saw that the sailing club was going to go on a sailing trip through the Keys of the Bahamas, so we all joined the sailing club. <laughs> never sailed before and sure enough we got our, our spring break was we had to do everything for seven days and we sailed all the different keys in the Bahamas and we had the captain and then just like 12 of us college kids and after it was the best spring break I've ever had and we learned so much but I never did another thing with the sailing club after that. The uh, sailing club there was a beautiful facility as you recall and I had sailed in Michigan for several years. So when we moved to Milwaukee, I was without a boat and with, without any sailing. So I joined the sailing club and you, you join and then you're rated based on your experience. So I'd sailed long enough that I would always have the highest rating. On Friday afternoon, we'd go down to the sailing club. I was traveling all the time. So Friday afternoon might start at noon. <laughs> <laughs> And As it should. <laughs> Nikki would not go with me. She sailed because I sailed. And when I owned the boat, she would, that was a different story. But anyway, I think she was on the boat in Detroit once or twice when we, as couples, would go. But you joined the sailing club. I go down on Friday at 5.30, 6 o'clock, they would gather and whoever had the best wind rating would be captain of the sailing boat. Nice. And it, they were 20-foot volants. And we'd pick out our crew, and we'd race. Oh my goodness! That was that was just great. Uh, Nikki took up sailing when I mentioned the name Rebecca three times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good. I believe story. I got to start sailing with you. <laughs> so, oh but that was that was, and then then we ended up buying a partnership in a boat in Milwaukee, in which I ended up ultimately moving here. So, so you, you moved your boat here? I did, yeah. Do you still have it? No, I took it. It was a time when oh. we were trying to give up sailing anyway, oh. and Ike relieved it of us. So. That's Hurricane Ike to all the non-Houston listeners. <laughs> yes, that yeah. was a doozy. So then I guess the last piece of the sailing goes to the Alyssa, which is a, uh, I can't remember what year it was built, but it was a European sailing ship from... The 1200s, 1300s? <laughs> but anyhow, it ended up in Galveston it's Island. It's 145 years old. My okay, goodness. 145, so I'm way off. So it's like <laughs> 1800s. Yeah, right. So it's in from the 1800s, and it was brought from Europe over to the U.S., and Galveston houses it. And you started there sometime in early 2000s. You, you Obviously, you're down in Galveston, or you had read something about it and ended up down there. And... Um, got involved what was i guess that just goes into wanting to be on the water and and be able to utilize you know because you mentioned you had to give 20 weekends or 20 saturdays a year and service to be able to be a part of the sailing crew right right well it was it was interesting in that it was an opportunity to learn square rig sailing which is 19th century sailing um 
and there are still quite a few around. There, there are very few old ones that are sailed, like the Alyssa. But the Alyssa is a museum ship. It's maintained as a museum ship, and people can tour it uh, year-round, except for about a two-week period of time in late March and early April. And so, and it's maintained by a thousand or thousands of volunteer hours that are in the sail training program. And so, uh, I just felt that that was one thing that I wanted to learn how to sail a square rig ship. It absolutely, totally nothing like sailing a sloop rig. There's only <clears throat> oh, about six fore and aft sails, and there's a total of 19 sails on it. And uh, so it's it's a totally different maneuver, but it was just such a valuable experience of being able to, uh, after 20 weeks of hard work, because half the time you're practicing on how to run the lines and trim the sails and all that, the other half the time you might be cleaning the bilge or whatever is necessary to keep it in good shape. And then uh, each year the reward was, if you had enough hours, then you'd be part of the crew that actually sailed the ship in the Gulf. My final deal on the Alyssa was part of the uh, Tall Ships America when they had uh, a bunch of tall ships in Galveston and then sailed the Alyssa to uh, Pensacola, Florida. And I sailed it from Pensacola to New Orleans as part of that trip. And uh, that, that was beautiful. Yeah. That's incredible. So tell me, with the volunteers on the crew, since uh, those of you who earned the the, um, the privilege of sailing, how were you as far as um, age-wise? Were there a lot of women, a lot of men, old, young? Like, tell me a little bit just out of curiosity. It had to be at least 17 to be a crew member. Okay. And they did have a youth program, and then they would graduate into the crew. And we had several that did that. Okay. Matter of fact, we had one young lady that we're proud of, really, she graduated our program and then studied at Annapolis. So. Wow. Well done. Okay. Now, that didn't help her credentials-wise. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the mix is really, uh, it may be even predominantly women. Really? From, you know, 18 years old to 80 years old. That's awesome. Uh, and, of course, we had one fellow that was about three or four years older than I that still climbed that rig up until two years ago. Awesome. So it, it's a whole range of people and you kind of earn your keep, so to speak, as to, you know, what duties you get. And they have people that are in charge of different masts and ranking and all that. But uh, it's just a whale of an experience of how to learn what keeps the ship going and then learning how to sail it. Because again, it's totally different in the what you'd expect from anything well, else. And I really appreciate that you have to spend time on everything from cleaning the bilge or what you mentioned to the fun jobs. Because I think so often people just want to show up and do the glory, but it takes a lot of the down on your hands and knees scrubbing and, and whatnot to um, make the whole process work. Yeah, it's hard to get exempt from the bilge duty. But <laughs> yes. I finally did because of size and age. Oh, <laughs> You know, Gary, this has been a phenomenal time talking to you. It started, you know, on a farm in Indiana, a kid that sold greeting cards to his neighbors, to just a variety of interesting jobs from snowmobiles. And and, and you had mentioned uh, in some of the notes here, you snowmobiled with your kids a lot. And that's some of your favorite memories in Michigan, snowmobiling. And, and then it leads from the cold to sailing 
up in the cold and then in the warm weather down here in the south and and then uh, you just you have a a really big passion for life and for helping others and getting other people involved and and i thank you for that and it's been great learning more about your story today oh, thank you i've enjoyed it gary thank you so much for coming today like i said i've known you and nikki for for years and i know so much about nikki and so it was so fun to sit down and hear more of your story and i love that from an early age you've done everything from following your dad and learning some of his trade and business and then your carpentry with your grandfather and then going into college and meeting your lovely bride and still uh, coming full circle here in Houston in your 80s, starting this phenomenal program that touches so many families. And like you said, not just the immediate families, but it's making an impact on generations. So thank you for sharing your story and for all that you've you've done and and the different ways you've just really have shown up in life this has been this has been exciting i've just so enjoyed learning this story about you thank you it's been fun you've touched a lot of people and 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 i think it shows in the people that know you but i think uh a lot of people also learn a lot about you from today so thanks for being open and talking with us it was a good time thank you thanks gary Thanks for listening to More to My Story podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast service. And please also share us with your friends and family. You can find more about More to My Story podcast on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Mm -hmm.